0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. It is the one and only Dr. David Solomon, and we are reunited and it feels so good. (laughs) Dr. David Solomon, I'm so happy to be back with you. I'm excited for today's show. And for those people who may live under a rock or in an ivory tower or could be on a high horse, would you be so kind as to maybe explain to them who you are?
1: Sure. Well, thanks, George, and thanks for having me back. It's good to see you again after a a bit of a break. Um, I am uh, currently the Director of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. Um, I've been in higher ed for something like 33 years or something, Um, Professor of Medieval Literature, Religion and Culture, Um, and I, uh, from New York City originally, Written a bunch of books. Most recent book is a book on the seven deadly sins. And uh, spring is here. We're well, spring is here, but in Virginia already, it seems like summer today. Today and tomorrow, we are in the mid eighties. It's a little bit crazy. Um, it's already getting a little humid, so it makes me worry about what the summer is going to be coming mm. coming on here. But um, it's a very strange uh, situation. The weather just been going up and down here. Uh, it's it, it's it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be 85 tomorrow, and then on Friday, I believe it's supposed to be 59.
0: Wow! So it's it's
1: it's just nuts. I mean, there's no normal for the weather anymore.
0: Yeah, it almost seems like the patterns are sort of, you know, the same as our world, is the weather, as everything yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. mean, you know people
1: will will say, you know, oh well, that's you know that that that's normal for here, and I'm like, well, there is no more normal because. Uh, the, the patterns have just shifted and, and nothing's predictable anymore. It seems when it comes to the weather, I mean, you know, regardless of where I've lived in the country, people have always said, if you don't like the weather here, wait five minutes and and everybody, (laughs) everybody thinks they own that. And then you move someplace else and they say it too. And you're like, yeah, they say that everywhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's classic. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too. Not only are weather patterns changing, but the, uh, landscape of our country is changing and you know i was digging into your last couple blogs and it seems like the idea of libraries are changing you know first first we have um alexandria and then we have vermont
1: (laughs) yeah it's been a big uh radical shift and it seems to to have happened overnight almost um you know we i mean we 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 started with ebooks gosh close to 30 years ago yeah um, I can remember when the 1st ebook reader came out, it was sold at, at like office. Um, I can't remember what it was called. The rocket book it was called um, <laughs> and it bombed. Um, it was expensive. And of course there weren't a lot of texts that were even available for it. Um, they tried to make it look like a book. I remember it had a little handle on the side that you held while you were reading, but it wasn't very good. And um, of course now, you know, with the, the explosion of the internet since then, Um, the availability of of e-texts, now it's just a a, a given. And uh, more and more, especially in the education world, when the administrators and the bean counters that I love so much um, sit down to look at their spreadsheets and figure out where can we cut, oftentimes it's the library that gets gets cut because they say, well, we don't need to buy books. You can just have ebooks and they're cheaper. And um, some of that statement is true. <laughs> sure. Um, some is not. Um, you know, I know that, that consistently we do surveys of college students and asking them what they prefer. And um, as far as I am aware, each year that we've done that survey nationwide, the last two decades students still say they would prefer actual physical books they don't want to use ebooks um now personally as an old book guy um i hate ebooks i can't stand (laughs) them i don't I, i i like the tactile physical nature of a printed book um along with you know a lot that comes with that which we can talk about um, and you don't get any of that from a, an electronic text because they're all vanilla. They look the same.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. In fact, there's a quote that I want to get into the tactile understanding and the way we handle books and the way we interact with them. But before we go there, there's a quote that I pulled out of your um, blog that I thought was that really kind of hit me hard. And I think the audience it, would really enjoy it. And then I wanted to get your opinion on it is. Modern education is not just the acquisition of information and facts, but the synthesis of that information to create knowledge and understanding. Can you unpack that a little bit more? I mean, it's pretty yeah. clear, but I, I think you can. I think that's
1: audience. so important. I mean, you know, as we have progressed in the, the Internet age, um, information is, is just available at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, basically, you know, just using my phone, I can access essentially, you know, any information that I want um, and easily find the answer to questions of fact. But really, education and the idea of becoming an educated person is not just about rote memorization of facts. It's about taking those facts and synthesizing them into Mm -hmm. knowledge. And knowledge is an incredibly personal thing. So, you know, for example, I mean, you know, George Washington was the first president of the United States is a fact, right? I mean, everyone has access to that. It's the same fact, regardless of who you are. Now, what I do with that fact, personally, when I integrate it into my knowledge and understanding of the history of the US and the break from from Britain and what was going on in in the world and in Europe at the time of, of the revolution, and then what Washington did as a president and and I mean, I automatically jump and think about his farewell address, which is so important. That's all personal, that's me. Um, and that experience of synthesizing those different pieces that I know is creating a new knowledge base for me. Um, you know, I I, I, I I use this phrase a lot with my students when it comes time for them to do research, I I direct the Office of Research and Creative Activity. And um, I really talk about the fact that what they're engaged in is the development of new knowledges. Mm -hmm. And I use the plural there um, intentionally. It's not new knowledge, it's new knowledges. We got lots of different ways of looking at things. And everybody's knowledge is different. It's a very personal experience. And so I really do believe um, that education is about that synthesis. Uh, You know, we all went through school and had to memorize things for tests, right? I mean, I can remember in high school, um, you know, I had a a yellow legal pad just like this one, right? (laughs) And before my test on photosynthesis, I laid on my bed and drew out the Krebs cycle over and over again because I was going to have to do that on the test. What's the Krebs cycle? Now, that's fantastic. That was many years ago. Um, I don't. I couldn't remember the Krebs cycle. Now, if you if you held a gun to my head, because I, I don't remember it. I because when you memorize things, it doesn't make them part of who you are. Right. It's not knowledge, right? I memorized it, and then I, you know, I spat it back up on the test, and then you know, to use to continue the the, the digestive metaphor, you leave the exam empty. Because you 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 th- you threw up what it is that you learned. Mm-hmm. you didn't make it your own. you didn't digest it. yeah, and education is about the digestion part. And so I think the mistake that's made oftentimes when we think about moving to a, a world in which e-texts, for example, are are the the norm, is that a lot of the experience of reading an e-text is, quite different from the experience of reading a printed physical text. And we've got studies that show this, um, that that it's a different kind of experience. I mean, I'm reading this book right now. And, you know, if I if I open it up, I mean, first of all, you know, I've got my own underlining and notes all over the place in it. I couldn't do that on an e text. And I also have the the, the tactile thing. I mean, I bought this book used Um, somebody else owned it before me. And, uh, you know, in a couple of places, that person had written their own notes. Yeah, I know nothing about them. I don't know, you know, and, you know, I always joke with students when they buy used textbooks and they, they, they rely on the stuff that's already been highlighted. <laughs> in it. And I say, you know, don't rely on it. The guy who owned the textbook before you may have failed the course. You know? <laughs> um, but the experience of reading this, I mean, I started this book and then I had put it back on my shelf and I picked it up yesterday again to finish it. And I had my card in here where I had left off, and I'm picking up where I'd left off. But there's something just about the the, the physical tactile experience of holding a printed book. And I'm not fetishizing it, or maybe I am. I don't know. Um, but there's something about that which, to me, is superior from reading something on a screen. Um, and you know, I, I I I can talk about it in a million different ways, and I don't know if I can put my fingers directly on what it is. Um, yes, some of it is is you know old man nostalgia that you know yeah I want printed books. I mean, if you see my 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 physical library is huge, um, and it's important to me because as I think I mentioned in that in that blog piece, uh, my library is my lab. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not a lab scientist. Lab scientists have their lab space. They work in a lab, and that's where they conduct their experiments. I do that in my library, in my office, surrounded by my books, and um, oftentimes that will mean, you know, going and pulling something off of a shelf because something struck me, and I'm drawing a, a connection between one thing and another, which may be completely unrelated. But in my mind, which is operating almost like a hypertext link,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm clicking on something and it's like, oh, what about that? Um, you know, I, I remember that happening quite vividly when I was finishing um, writing a monograph a couple of years ago on, on faculty evaluation in higher education. Um, riveting stuff. <laughs> riveting stuff. It'll make a great movie, George, and <laughs> And um, I was right. And they had said the person who was who had asked me to to do the project said, write the introduction and write the conclusion and then, you know, edit what's in between. Somebody had written the intervening chapters. And so I started writing the I think it was the conclusion. And I was just sitting at my computer just sort of riffing on everything. I'm bringing in Aquinas. I'm bringing in (laughs) Dewey. I mean, I'm whipping everything in. And then for some ridiculous reason. Winnie the Pooh came to mind. <laughs> and so I went to the, my shelf and pulled off my copy of Winnie the Pooh and and checked because I was thinking about something that had triggered that. And I looked and <laughs> there was the perfect thing said by Winnie the Pooh that I dropped into this essay. Um, I don't think that would have happened if I didn't have my physical books around me.
0: It's a great point. I, sometimes, I think that the book is the final manifestation of the work. And if you are unable to hold that final copy, that tangible thing, then part of it is still in translation. You know what I mean? Like if you just see it on the screen, it's even if it's an author's full work, like to have the actual book is to have the idea fully formed, I think.
1: Well, it also – but it also piggybacks on the uh, on, on the whole question of, of how do we define reality, right? I mean, I, I will often say, you know, if the text is on the screen, it's not real. Yeah. Um, because there's nothing tangible about it. I yeah. can pull a plug out of, the, out of the wall and it's gone. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't do that with my books that are sitting on the shelf. They're going to be here. Um, they're here whether I'm here or not. Um, and so it, it it's just a different point of view about what does it mean for something to actually be a thing to be real um you know i know that what i do now is i mean yes i mean i write exclusively on the computer i don't write out longhand my handwriting is horrible um after so many years my my fingers will cramp up Mm. and i mean the only thing that i actually write out longhand is when i grade papers i do that longhand but um but i now when i grade longer papers and projects of my students I am actually grading and writing notes on the physical paper, but I also have open on my computer a document and I'm writing longer notes to them on that page, which I'll print off and attach then at the end. But um, it's just about, there's something about process. I mean, you know, I will compose what I'm writing on the computer. Yes. But I, I almost always do editing after I print off a copy and edit with a pen, hmm. and then go back and make those changes on the screen. I rarely edit on the screen. Um, and I'm sure it goes back. And again, this is a generational thing, right? I mean, we grew up writing on a typewriter, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you you hit that key, and boom, you know, the the, the the key came down and smacked against the ink, and the ink made an impression on the paper, and it was a physical, physical thing, Yeah, you know, it was a physical manifestation of the idea was now on the page, printed, and it became real. And I think there's still something to that. And I again, I say it maybe it's generational. I don't know. Um, I don't think my students today operate in the same way. Um, In fact, they're encouraged now to not print anything at all in the name, well, the name of sustainability. Right. Right. Where you know we ask them to submit their work online on learning uh, management systems on, on platforms. Um, and I still ask them to do that, but I also do ask them to, to print off a copy because I have to read it that way and make notes on it. So it's, it, it, it's, it's a, it's an interesting time kind of that we're, we're, we're kind of sitting on the crux, I think, between two very different generations when it comes to this. Um, you know, I, we, we tell students now, don't bring a printer with you. Um, because they get some print money and they can print remotely on printers that we have in the library when they need to print something so we most of them don't even bring a printer with them i mean i could not imagine having my computer not having a connected to a printer
0: yeah yeah it's it really is fascinating to think about the way in which we not only produce information but we consume information you know and it, it just seems to be accelerating, like everything Sometimes I wonder, you know, it got me thinking when we, let me try to get the right words for a minute. It almost seems like the digital libraries, like if we look at Google or these search engines as a digital library, it almost seems like the computer is, is sort of conditioning us to learn the way it or retrieve information the way it retrieves information. You know, when a computer just goes through stuff, finds a keyword and then brings something up. And it seems that when you go to a library, whether it was through the old Dewey decimal system or whether it was through walking to a, a bay or a rack of books and then looking through something. And a lot of times when you do that, you would find a different book that you pulled out that would interest you. Exactly. Whereas, yeah, whereas the Google or these, these new types of yeah. virtual libraries, they just pull information that, is of somewhat of a, a segregated area and, and give you something that you may. Like, I heard a great quote that I think is that is uh, perfect for this. It says, uh, Google can give you 100,000 answers. A librarian will find you the right answer.
1: Right, right. Yep. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's it's the difference between a kind of hunt and peck method yeah. and, you know, going directly to the thing. Um, you know, I have students in one of my classes do a library assignment where I give them a call number of a book and they have to go and find the book and then look on the shelf and look at all the books that are around it. Um, and they write a reflection on, on what, what they, what they found. And um, usually I try to target it at what their major is. Mm-hmm. So I'm directing them to go to the area where their the books in their major would be. And almost always they're like, this was, th- I, you know, I, I never knew we had X, Y, or Z. It's like, cause they don't, Scan shelves. They don't go to a, a, a to to the library anymore. I mean, you know, the, the, we have a, a decent collection in our library here, but I think you know our circulation numbers are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the students are actually using of our printed uh, materials because most of everything else they're they're accessing it online merely because it's easy. Yeah, right. I can access it easily online from my dorm room. I don't have to go to the library. Uh, you know, one of my favorite stories about about that is when I was in graduate school at the University of Connecticut. And um, the UConn library has well, I think they've changed it now. They've modified it. But at the time it had a, 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 a an entry, a main level that you walked into, which was just the entry. Um, And then you took an escalator up to the first floor, which is where the reference section was. And I remember quite vividly one year standing up on that first floor, and it was commencement weekend. And uh, a student had brought her parents into the library to show them around she was graduating. And um, she stopped me and asked, you know, where's the escalator down? Well, there was no escalator down. It was only an escalator up. You either took the stairs down or the elevator, which proved one thing. She'd been at UConn for four years and had never really used the library (laughs) because she didn't know that. And I thought that was just horrifying, you know, that somebody that a a college student could go through four years of college and not use the physical library. So I forced my students to to do it now. And I'm sorry, you know, I have to force them because otherwise they're not going to do it. But it's almost like saying, you know, well, you you you've got diabetes, I'm going to force you to take your insulin. Yeah. Um, it, it, is, it is good for them. I mean, I, my students this semester, I required that they, that they, they had to get at least one thing on interlibrary loan because the things, the topics they're working on I, we don't have the books for that stuff. And I don't want them only finding their information online. And so they were required each of them to at least request one interlibrary loan for their paper. And send me the the screenshot of the request, um, and I, I think you know I, I'll ask them at the end of the semester whether they they found that beneficial. But I most of them I don't think had used interlibrary loan before, and these are mostly sophomores and juniors.
0: It's interesting, you know. It, it, I think it speaks volume. I think libraries are a good map of how a scholar thinks, like you know, you go in, it's classified in a certain way. You go up to the, like you said, you go up and you can take a snapshot of everything around you. That's kind of the same way your brain works when you're thinking about an idea. And then all of a sudden the idea broadens out to all these other things. It's the right. same way the bookcase is set up. But when you well, go I mean, online now, right? It's different. I, I, I mean,
1: I wonder if, <laughs> yeah. if I brought you into my library, my office and, and the other places where I've got books, cause they're not all in here um if even looking at what I've got, if you would be able to f- sort of figure out who I am
0: oh guaranteed and and the way you think, like oh I see well, he has uh Canterbury Tales over here with t s Eliot yeah. you know or yeah. he, Paul is over be oh he must think this and then maybe move over this way or at least I can make some yeah. speculations of that, and that's a right. fun thing to do. it's like being yeah. in someone's head
1: yeah i i mean i I do think there is something to that, and uh you know, I, 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 I've I always been baffled for my entire life when you go to visit somebody's home and they don't have bookshelves. <laughs> um, but there, there are a lot of people who don't, you know. I know. And I think that's probably a growing thing now because of the availability of e-texts and e-books and the ease with which you can get them. Um, and I think that's probably the case. I think I've told you the story before. I mean, when I taught in South Dakota, which was um, in the early 2000s, um, I had a colleague who said, You know, most of these kids grew up in a house where they had three books, the Bible, the Sears Catalog, and the TV Guide. You know, that was the only thing they had in the in the house. Um, that's really kind of amazing. Uh, you know I mean, I, I mean, I did not grow up in a house with with intellectuals. My parents were high school educated. Uh, but my father valued books, and we did have books on on shelves, you know, and he was always reading. Um, so there was a value that was clearly um, appointed to the printed book, and and you know I can remember going into bookstores with him and 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 looking around back when you know bookstores were a lot more um, accessible and 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 frequent than they are now. What what what's the bookstore situation like in Hawaii? I, I'm curious.
0: Well, it um, it used to be Borders and Barnes and Noble sure. and a few small ones. But after Borders went out of business, then it pretty much collapsed everything into the world of Barnes and Noble. And we yeah. have, and even some of their smaller Barnes and Nobles that were like little satellite stores, those closed down. And so now you just have the bookstores at like the, the big malls and and in some yeah. ways they've, they've taken the place of the library because you'll see people in there reading. Oh, absolutely.
1: Around. Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's been for a long, long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a bookstore in the 80s and we used to have people coming in all the time who would, you know, my kids got to do a project on, you know, dinosaurs, what kinds of books, do you... you know, it was when people started buying books rather than going to the library for them. Um, so, you know, I saw that, that firsthand, but yeah, I mean, it, it always amazes me that it, um, you know, you go into these large cities or these college towns and they're, they're, no bookshops and I, I don't really understand that because that is not the case in europe mm. um where any you know i mean in the uk any dinky little town you go into out in the countryside you know they've got they've got three things you know they've got a general kind of general store that's got everything they've got a pub and they've got a bookstore um and it, it, that's that actually is is not not hyperbolic that's that that's true um, and here that's not the case. I mean, here I am in Newport News, Virginia, and um, you know my university is here, which has a, an undergraduate population of 5,000. Um, we have a community college in Newport News, which also has a fairly large enrollment. We have the College of William and Mary, which is 20 minutes away in Williamsburg. And in Newport News, there are two bookstores. There's a Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. And there's a second in Charles, which is another uh, chain that sells uh, secondhand. Mm. Um, and that's it. Um, and and I get frustrated with the Barnes and Noble because they've changed their their whole tack. And they, they're not really in the book business anymore. I don't know what business they're in. <laughs> they depleted what they even stock. Um, you know, you go in looking for something that just seems like to me as a bookstore guy, you know is a stock item you should have a copy of this on the shelf and now we can special order it right everything is always we can special order it for yeah. you right or you can you know or you you can order it online I mean, we see that with everything now mm-hmm. right um you know you're going to buy a dress shirt you know oh you know we don't have that size but we can order it for you online it's like but if i wanted to order it online i wouldn't come into the store <laughs> <laughs> i want the experience of being here and and i'm not getting that and so you know when i'm traveling and i mean I, I can't walk past the bookstore without going in um at, at, because i just i think it's just a vital part of the the local culture um to have a good bookstore
0: yeah it's the, it's the i i haven't really been to europe as an as since like the age of in my 20s however i What do you think it is? Is it the culture? Is it the backbone of the community? Is it the storytelling? Or what is it? What's different about the local communities there versus the cities over here?
1: I I mean, I think a lot of it obviously is cultural. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is also that they have a different perspective on education Mm. than we do. Um, Education in the U.S. has really transformed in the last 50 years and not for the better. Yeah. Um, you know, our culture, I mean, all of the, the, the you know, our culture puts down higher education in particular. I mean, look what's going on in Florida. Look what's going on, you know, throughout the country with attitudes towards higher ed. Um, it's always been a, a kind of anti-intellectual take. And you don't see that um, in the UK. I mean, I'm always struck when I'm traveling in the UK that if you're on the tube in London, people are sitting there reading books um you know and and not junk they're reading like you know dickens um and 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 i i just i'm always struck by that because um you do not see that here and uh so i i do think it's 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 highly a cultural issue but it also is just a different viewpoint of education and the fact that the u.s has become so anti-intellectual in the last couple of decades um, and 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 I should say part of that is our own damn fault in education, right? We 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 did that, right? We marginalized ourselves. You know, you mentioned that phrase earlier, you know, the ivory tower. Right? I mean, you know, we we marginalized ourselves. So if we want to be relevant, well, we damn well got to be relevant. And how do you do that? Well, it's through the development of, and I've written about this in other places, the public intellectual which largely we have, have lost in many ways um, in the last couple of decades. We have a few people who still kind of fill that role, but not nearly as many as once did in this country, who really kind of bridged the, the world of, of education, which was looked at as you know, elitist mm-hmm. and popular thought, and they were able to have one foot in both uh you know I, my students are always shocked when i when i show them the picture of robert frost on the cover of life magazine um you know a poet was on the cover of life magazine uh now of course i gotta first i gotta explain to them what life magazine is but that's, that's <laughs> a whole other issue but to talk about how these 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 thinkers were part of the popular landscape and and that isn't necessarily the fact today i mean you know I would think probably you know you you could mention Stephen Hawking and people know who mm-hmm. he is, maybe maybe people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, mm-hmm. and, and you know and and there these are the important figures who are bridging the gap. I mean, mentioning those two in particular between the world of hard
0: science. You still there? Oh, I lost you just for a little glitch right there. Yeah.
1: Uh, And explaining it to the to the public so that the public actually. uh... Oh, I lost you again. Sorry, we're having a Wi-Fi issue, I think. Um, Should be okay now, I think. Um, So, you know, and and so as I say, you know, to say that that we live in an anti-intellectual society. I mean, in many ways, I look at education and I blame us.
0: And I say, well, we did it to ourselves. I don't like I, I, I semi agree with that. I, I don't think it's so much the educator as it is the institution of, you know, we, we need a, here's a, here's a, one of our guests put this up. And I think that while he's talking about bookstores, I think that this applies to education as well. And he says, I think the pace of life of the culture in the U S has pushed us faster away from bookstores. You could put education in there as well also the cost of doing business at the state of commercial real estate move to conglomerate like that is a huge like incentive structure and you know cost uh analysis and 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 these ideas that really have nothing to do with the state of education you had spoken earlier about a degree in humanities doesn't really begin to pay off you don't see the benefits of that until people begin to grow and understand and sometimes it seems that you know Educate. Maybe another way. Maybe there's a difference between learning and having something develop inside of you.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the cost-benefit analysis drives <laughs> yeah. so much of this. Yeah. Um. And and it, you know, it it drives most of us crazy when we see those those surveys and those polls come yes. out that say, yeah. you know, if you get a degree from this institution, you're gonna be a high-earning individual. It's like, what? that's not the goal of education, right? Um, that's vocational training. Yep. Um, and we, we, in many ways have, have, in know, strange, bizarre way, collapse them when it comes to the four year, um, institutions of, of, of higher learning in the U S it's, it's become more and more driven by, well, what, what can I do with the degree when I get out? How much mm-hmm. money can I make? Yeah. Um, And it's why we have had, you know, this great decline in people majoring in areas in the humanities, because it's difficult. You know, I I can manage, I can major in biology. And what am I going to be when I'm done? I will be a biologist. Okay. I can major in English. What am I going to be? An Englishman? No. (laughs) You know. (laughs) <laughs> it, it it just doesn't work that way. And so, you know, it doesn't translate in the same sense. Um, but the, this the cost benefit thing is 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 the killer. And certainly, you know, as, as that person mentioned, I mean, the, the cost, I mean, real estate and, uh, you know, right now we're looking at and, and this is the other thing that I try to convey to students when we talk about this. They think, oh, tuition's so expensive. Yes, it is. It's ridiculous. It's completely mm-hmm. out of control, I think, across the board. But they think their tuition money is paying for my salary. The tuition money is not paying for my salary. The tuition money is paying for physical plant and services. And because we become have had to be forced to become more competitive because there are fewer students, our college campuses have become like resorts. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's all about, well, what services can we offer? And, you know, how nice is your dining hall? Um, it, it, it's, it's that. It's about, you know, well, what, is the, what does the campus look like? Oh, it's a beautiful campus. You know, but that's the, that doesn't mean anything about yeah. what you're doing. Um, but the, the, the cost of doing this business has become really prohibitive. Um, I mean, I think at all the institutions that I've taught at through my career, Um, As far as I have understood it, being on the inside, the highest expenditure out of the budget each year is physical plants, paying for heating and cooling um, to maintain buildings. Um, That's the cost, and it shouldn't be, but it is, um, because we've got this kind of out-of-whack idea about what we're doing. Um, You know, there's a reason why in the Middle Ages in Europe, they they wore those heavy robes that we now wear for as regalia commencement now they wore them to teach in the buildings were damn cold they didn't (laughs) have any heat um you know they were drafty and they were cold and so they taught in those robes that's where it came from and students wore them too um but now we're just we we want to be comfortable Mm -hmm. right and so our college campuses are like resorts and if, I mean, you can go and visit them online and you'll see it even, even more so because of course the online thing, you're seeing an ad. Um, mm-hmm. But in many cases, it's not far from what it really is when you go and visit and you're on the ground. Um, you know, I mean, we have, we have multiple dining halls, the food choices are, are, are like you're, it's like you're on a cruise, um, you know, and the other services that we offer. I mean, you know, if you hear people on tours on our college campuses and listen to what's being pointed out to them, I can guarantee you that 75% or more is, has got little to do with academics. It's about the buildings and the services that are offered the fitness center, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, now those should be value added, but they're not now they've become the thing.
0: Yeah, you know when you put it like that, it's there's no it makes sense why we see education where it is. You know, when you have, you know, I read an article that said some of the Ivy Leagues are going for ninety thousand. My my daughter's private school is thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because you you have to start at, instead of asking the question how much money am I going to make after leaving here, maybe you should be asking the question like, what kind of people are we attracting here? You know, you know, there, history and biographies, and so many of the stories I love are rife with people who didn't belong in some places, but out of, but had a yeah. talent for something, or a vision of something, or an ability to see things different than something. And sometimes it seems yeah. we're excluding the very people we need in order to make things work. But, but that's because the our- very
1: <laughs> idea of, of of what this should be has shifted, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, oh, for the days when. It was it was a sign of, of privilege that you had a high school diploma. Right now, I mean, people you know, it, most people are expected to have a master's degree in something, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's 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 become the value of the degree has been has been lowered. Yeah, and um, that's that's a dangerous thing. I mean, I started to see that in the 1980s when we had schools that had become MBA mills. Right in the '80s, everybody who worked in the business world had to have an MBA, yeah. and so colleges became MBA mills. They were just mm-hmm. churning them out, um, and it, it it just it it devalued the degree. Yep. And now, you know, I, I don't want to insult anybody who has an MBA and worked hard for it, but I mean, you know, MBAs are a dime a dozen now, whereas it used to be, you know, oh, you have an MBA, that was impressive. Yeah. Um, when we devalue it by allowing or inviting everyone to the party, I don't think that that's doing us a, 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 a good thing in the end. you know, And what I'm getting at is, I've been saying this my entire life since I started teaching in the 1980s. you know, not everyone should go to college. Um, but our public school systems really drive that home in most cases. Right. I mean, most high school curricula are labeled as college prep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. if you don't go to college, then, you know, what what are you going to do? Um, well, there are a plenty of jobs and plenty of, 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 of vocations that you can go into that don't require a college degree. But increasingly, because, again, we devalued the degree. Now, in many cases, you got to have a college degree. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about something we were talking about a job. That's, that somebody, a relative of hers was trying to get, I forget what it was. And um, and I said, well, wh- why doesn't she go for it? I mean, she, she already worked at the company, she wanted to move up. And she said, well, she doesn't have a college degree. I, was like, and I said, you need a college degree to do what that, that I mean, that job, come on, you know? But it, it's supply and demand, right? I mean, we glutted the the market with people who have college degrees, mm-hmm. and so what that does. I mean, I'm no economist, but it devalues it, right?
0: Yeah, even in even in primary schools, it seems to me like the standardization of education has made it less than exceptional. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that that what's going on at the elementary school level right. at the moment is 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 frightening, criminal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I, I was going to say startling, but it, it, it yeah, I mean it, it it's just it's it's crazy. Um, I mean the 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 homogeneity of the thing that you know it should all be the same, and um, so everyone's going to learn the same thing, and come out of it being able to pass the same test. Um, that just is, I mean, it, it's completely antithetical to our our attitudes about individualism. Yeah um and you know i mean i i re- i mean you probably do too george but i remember vividly certain you know i remember all the teachers i had in elementary school but i remember certain things that i was taught by certain ones yeah. of them which has stuck with me my entire life um and i don't know if they're getting that anymore because teachers today elementary school teachers right up through high school in the public schools are so um locked into doing what the state and the local school boards dictate there's not much freedom for them to do what they want to do and be creative as teachers the way that you know my teachers were when i was in elementary school i couldn't imagine that those folks would be able to do it now and it and it's and it's 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 indicative of the, the the burnout rate right of those teachers that they just can't stick with it I mean we had teachers when when I was in elementary school that that was their entire life. You know, they mm-hmm. taught for 40 years. Um I don't think teachers make it that long these days. Um the burnout rate is 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 pretty high and most often it doesn't have if you talk to teachers about it it doesn't have a lot to do with teaching. It's the administrative hassle. That's what's getting them. That's what's burning them out.
0: Yeah. I guess if there was like, if I, excuse me, if I, sometimes I like to imagine what the future could be like. And when I look at all the circumstances that are happening, maybe while we seem to be heading towards crisis, there's, there's room for opportunity. And it seems that maybe there could be a return of school for the scholar. You know, because we are turning out all these things. They're just not working. We're asking the wrong questions and the yeah. standardization. And you, you're beginning to see like these green shoots of some charter schools here or even yeah. you coming online and talking to people. Like you're influencing people that may not have access that other people do have access to. And mm-hmm. that is lighting a fire in the minds of the youth of today that, that yeah. they can – go and, and, and learn and check things out. So maybe what we're seeing is sort of a renaissance of the scholar back to the school. What do you think about that?
1: I hope so. Um, you know, you, you and I are always uh, the, the the pessimist optimist here. You know, <laughs> you, you, you're the optimistic guy sitting in Hawaii and I'm the pessimistic Jew from the Bronx. Um, and so we're like, it's like point counterpoint, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I hope it's going to come to that i don't know um i mean it's not looking good you know the way that 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 politics in particular has has infiltrated the world of education mm-hmm. is is just it's killing it it's killing it and uh you know i i don't see that changing anytime soon i wish it would um, but i don't see it changing anytime soon it, it seems to get be getting worse um and it's just it, it, again, you know, I, I keep coming back to this beating a drum, but it's the anti-intellectual attitude of the culture. Um, you know, the fact that, and, and and I don't mean to constantly be comparing us to places like the UK, but the fact that most towns don't have a local newspaper anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and if you go to London and you want to go and buy a newspaper, there's like ten different papers to pick from on a daily basis. Um here, you know, oftentimes if I'm traveling and I want to get a local newspaper and I stop into a 7-11 or whatever the local convenience store is, they don't even sell newspapers. Um that or, or magazines for that matter, right? Mm, yeah. Um <laughs> that just is is not a good and and as we were saying before, no bookstores, right? That's just not a good indicator. I think that I think the reflection of what your local culture is. Is there a local newspaper? Do you have a local bookstore that's decent, right? And what is the 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 artistic community like in your mm-hmm. in your area, right? And 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 yes, you know the, the 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 science nerds will say, oh well, that's all you know about the humanities, but the fact of the matter is that. Even Elon Musk, the hated Elon Musk and and Bill Gates, when they published that piece last week, that letter that said that they thought we needed a five-year pause on artificial intelligence, on AI. They expressed there, and Gates has said it often, the importance of the humanities and the sciences working together. So, you know, I always tell my, you know, the sciences tell you that you can do it. The humanities tell you whether you should. Mm -hmm. And in our race to make a buck, the whether you can do it trumps whether you should. Just do it, it's going to make a dollar. Right. And that's just, that's a sad direction for us to be headed. Um, it, it, it is, I mean, I hope that it's going to change. Um, I don't see it changing at the moment and I don't see indications of it. I mean, again, you know, with what's going on in certain areas in this country, I mean, you know, Florida is the easy one to point to. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just an, that's just nightmarish what's going on down there. It really is. I mean, and I've gotten a lot of friends who are in higher ed at various institutions in Florida and they've been telling me what's happening. Uh, I mean, one of my good friends got a memo from the governor's office, telling him that he needed to do a quote audit, a DEI audit of his email. Any email that he had had in exchange with anybody about related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, they wanted a copy of it. I mean, you know, uh, hello, can you get Big Brother on the phone? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just that's just crazy. Um, I mean, what about academic freedom and intellectual freedom? Uh, that's just it it it's gone out the window here. And in the name of what? In the name of it's it's political. It's all political.
0: It's all political. it's It's interesting to me. like sometimes I think the answers to our problems lay in the language that we use. like when i when I think about university, isn't that the antonym of diversity? You know how how can you have diversity in a university? <laughs> Shouldn't everybody come to the university and be under this banner and then argue about things in a form that's exciting and sure. people can learn instead yeah. of it being like okay you know what I mean like it's it's the antecedent of like how can you have both?
1: Well we talk right I mean you know I, I talk all the time about liberal arts education I mean, liberal liberal and liberal arts education is about free thinking.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right? I
1: mean you are and I tell my students I say, you know, getting a liberal arts education is encouraging you now to do free thinking, to think for yourself. And they're like, well, wait a minute. And I say, well, because before this, you've been under the influence of other factors, your parents, maybe a church, you know, you've been under the influence of other entities that had power and authority over you. Now you're at university studying the liberal arts and we're saying, okay, be a free thinker now. Think for yourself. Figure out what it is that you believe, right? Don't just tack on to what other people believe who have told you that that's what you should think. And, you know, it, it, that's why the liberal arts are so damn important in, in education. And um, that is what many of the players that we're talking about would rather get rid of because they don't want people to be able to think like that. They want them to follow the the, the party line and, and just toe the line and whatever it was that they have been told. Uh, You know, it's, it's like going back to the, to the early middle ages before the age of print when, you know, most people couldn't read. Only person that could read would be the priest. The priest would read you the Bible and interpret the Bible for you because you couldn't read it. Um, And, you know, it was a way of the church having authority over its its members. And then once the Reformation hits as a result of the printing press, you know, people are saying, well, you know, hey, I I can read this book, too. Right. And come up with my own interpretation. Yeah. Of course, the Catholic Church said, "Uh, no, we don't like (laughs) that because that just means that, you know, we have to give up our authority over you. And we're talking about the same thing today with, with liberal arts. Right. I mean, you know, I, I think a liberal arts education is is probably the most important thing we have. I, I really do. Um, I mean, yes, if you want to go and learn how to fix air conditioners, we can send you someplace to do that. And that's great. We need people who can fix yeah. air conditioners. Don't get me wrong. But if you want to become a, a highly educated person, the liberal arts have got to be the integral component of that education.
0: Right. Yeah. So on a, on, a, on a related note, you know, there's a group of people like these accelerationists that are saying the opposite of Elon Musk and, and Bill Gates, but they're doing it in a way that's like, yeah, let's accelerate this whole thing and just blow it up. Let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, it, it, might it be that both things lead to the same thing? Like if we just go down the path that we're on now, or let's say we put a pause to, to AI and things like that, might that just prolong the authoritarian and continue to muck us down where if you take the acceleration route,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Hey, let's, let's just speed it up and it will show society that we need the liberal arts. In fact, it will, it will give birth to a more robust study of the liberal arts. What what do you think about that? You
1: may be absolutely right. Um, I mean, I I, I had a advisor in graduate school, who um, said that he didn't think anybody should write about Shakespeare for five years? Um, actually, I think he said ten years, um, because there was just so much out there about Shakespeare. We needed time to to read it all and catch up. And I think that that's partially what we're talking about here: is you know the acceleration, the speed with which yeah. we live in our society, does not give us the opportunity to thoughtfully consider things. Yeah. You know it's that whole again it's again it's that whole you know just because we should doesn't mean we just because we can doesn't mean we should right just because we can have driverless cars doesn't mean we should have driverless <laughs> cars um just because you know we can have ai available to everybody doesn't mean we should um and it's the humanities that that does that if we should question that's where we work that out but yeah you know, the the, the other side of campus works much faster than we do. Because, you know, I can't think as quickly as a microprocessor, right? I mean, you know, quite honestly, right? I mean, they can do things with incredible speed. And, you know, that's wonderful for them. But when it comes to questions that deal with issues related to morality and ethics, as so many of these questions do... It takes time to reflect on that and to work it out. Um, that's why, you know, when you read a philosopher's work, it's never a good idea to read one piece in isolation because you really need to read the the breadth of what it is that they're trying to say. Because their opinion and their attitude about things probably changes through their, through their lives and through their work. Um, and it's important for us to see that.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me, when I was little, my grandpa used to say, if you want a new idea, read a really old book. And it seems to me like, if if you just look at the path that we're on, may, maybe this is part of the course. May, you know, Maybe this is something that we always do as a species, is that half of us go way out on this limb of like, this is where we're going. And it seems like they're so far ahead, but Those of us that are studying the humanities or the philosophers, like, nah, I think I'm going to stay this course. And then Mm -hmm. the bridge falls off or it's a dead end and they got to retrace their steps. And we're like, oh, yeah, by the way, now we're 10 steps ahead of you because we've been studying on this path. And it's interesting to think like maybe maybe this is a way for part of society to forget so that other people can discover.
1: I hope so. I hope so. The only the only problem is that the people who were going so fast out there, they're chasing a dollar. Yes, and that adds a a, a a really ugly aspect to all of this, doesn't it? Sure. Um, and and that's part of the problem here, right? Is that when when you introduce capitalism to all of this now, mm-hmm. it changes the whole complexion of the dis- of the discussion.
0: In some ways, I think that they're devaluing the dollar. Like if you like, they're they're fundamentally changing the idea of what money is, and it seems to me it has a discount rate, like you know, if if we just, if we pan back for a minute and we take the observer view instead of the subject or object view, it seems to me that there's a new currency evolving and it's the currency of dopamine. It's the currency Mm. of likes, it's the currency of views. And if you look at the people that are dropping out of the workforce, like, why would I do that? Like, I would just rather live in my parents' house and do nothing than go be a slave over here. Like, and and yeah. they're they're creating these new ways of working and connecting with people, and that's kind of what money is—is is a way of connecting people, right?
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I mean, there there certainly are new economies. I think that are growing out of all of this. That will be really interesting to see how it pans out. Um, I, I don't know. I I you know again, you know, economics certainly not my area, but. I think that that does, you know, there is a future where economies are going to look quite different from what they do now um, for a variety of reasons, least of which is, as you say, you know, people saying, you know, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to, I mean, you know, we we talk a lot here. I don't know what the, the employment situation is like in Hawaii, but I mean, here, I mean, you know, businesses have signs out that they're desperate to hire people.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and, you know, everybody says, well, it's the effect of COVID and I'm like, well, but COVID was two years ago and people gotta work, don't they? Yeah. What are they doing? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And it does you a, go into some businesses, especially restaurants, right? Where they can't get yeah. wait staff. Yeah. And they've got like half the restaurant is 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 cordoned off because we don't have staff. Yeah. Um, and so we, you know, we there are there are open tables, but we can't seat you because we don't have staff. I, I see that more and more, and not just here. I, I encountered that in uh, in England last summer. Um, they're having a tremendous problem with employment over there, and and underemployment when it comes to these businesses that were trying to get back on track. Um, a lot of them in service industries, where they just don't have the employees. Um, I mean, we went into restaurant after restaurant where literally half the restaurant was empty, and we wanted a table, and they said, "Well, we're booked for tonight." I said, what do you mean you're booked? Half the restaurants have, we don't have staff.
0: Like, how can that be when you, when the government comes out and says, oh, we have record, you know, there's there's no jobs and this is a great unemployment rate. Low
1: unemployment, yeah. Like,
0: these things don't add up.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't I, again I'm no economist that's for sure. so I, I don't understand the way those numbers are reported right and what they mean and I'm sure there's some some something going on with the data that's making it look a certain way. Um, but I mean you know I, I think just about anybody would agree that you know if you walk into any any um, store or any place where, where, where services are offered, um, they're understaffed um, you know my, my daughter works for Starbucks here locally. And, um, you know, they're they're constantly down one or two people. And, um, you know, she's always saying, you know, people can't get mad at us. We're doing the best we can. We, we're understaffed. Now, that's become the catch-all excuse for everything now, too, is, oh, well, we're understaffed. Um, I mean, in some cases, it's true. I don't know yeah. why.
0: Yeah, I, we were speaking a little bit before the show started. I work at a trucking company and they laid off 30% of the people, but they didn't lose 30% of the volume. You know, it's But so yeah. if, if we take this back a second, you know, maybe th- what you're teaching right now is becoming more important than it has in a long time because people are paying attention and the studies that you have learned, the areas where you're a scholar at, they speak to this idea that was before productivity. They speak to a different time. And maybe these are the lessons that the people need to relearn so that we can move forward. And you're a huge part of that.
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, that's what I've tried to do my entire career, my entire life. Um, you know, I've often said, I mean, you know, do, doing what I do, this isn't a job. This is my life. Um, it's 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 more than just a job. And I think that, um, you know, if we can Get people involved in discussing and thinking about these big ideas. Um, that would really be a, a, a nice step towards getting out of this situation that we're in. And uh, you know, then we can be uh, as optimistic as George, right? <laughs> Yeah, so it, it reminds me of the, 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 you know, I want to be like Mike. We got, you know, I want to be like George. Nobody wants to be like David. I want to be like George. I want to be like George.
0: <laughs> well, it takes both of us. It takes both of us to sit down and yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. about that? What about that? You know, I, um, it's beautiful. I, I love talking to you and I think you're an incredible human being and I oh, love thanks. what you're doing and I love reading your books. And for those people that are, are watching right now, the latest book, The Seven Deadly Sins, we did quite a bit of coverage on there, and I would highly recommend anybody who's found anything remotely interesting about this conversation to pick up David's book. His links will definitely be in the show notes down there. Um, I think you got another book coming out too, don't you? Yeah, are working on a
1: new book on angels and demons in pop culture and uh, working on a, a project currently, which is going very slowly, which uh, is, a, is kind of a discussion between – uh, St. Augustine and Carl Jung. So, looking at how the, the two of them um, really had a lot in common and uh, a lot to agree about. So,
0: that sounds fascinating. I can't yeah. wait to learn more about that. Wow. Well, as I'm getting ready to land the plane here, before I let you go, um, would you be so kind as to tell people where they can find you, what you have coming up, and uh, what you're excited about?
1: Yep. Yeah. So my website is David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N dot And you can find the links to, to the books and links to uh, my blog and consulting and media appearances that all the good stuff that I've done with George is there. And um, what I am looking forward to, well, we are coming towards the end of the academic year. So it's always a time of excitement on campus as we come closer to commencement. And seeing our students graduate and go on, which is uh, always a good feeling and 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 somewhat bittersweet as an educator to to see them go, um, but that's always an exciting thing. And uh, most looking forward to um, two days after I have to read almost eight hundred names at commencement, I will get on a plane with sixteen students, and we will go to London for two and a half weeks to do a course on the museums of London.
0: Maybe this maybe this time if everybody doesn't get sick we can do a, a we can do a podcast from That's London right. from the museums over here.
1: We were going to do that last summer and then uh I Disaster. and six students got covid and we were stuck in a hotel in in Swansea Wales for a week. So yes, yes, <laughs> we we definitely should try to do that this okay. year. I I would like that.
0: Me as well. Well, um David i'm dr david solomon leader mentor author educator all around amazing human being thank you so much for being here it was a real pleasure and um i know we got the passover holiday coming up and everyone's gonna be taking some time off so in a couple weeks we'll reconvene and we will go back at it and try to solve the world's problems again (laughs)
1: sounds good to me thanks so much
0: of course aloha everybody aloha everyone